0: Twenty One: The Young Woman's Guide to Excellence by William A. Alcott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Vera Snow. Chapter Twenty One: Rest and Sleep. The moving powers of the human body are so constructed by the Grand Mover of all things that they require rest as well as action. And the many hundreds of muscles and tendons in the living system. It is not known that there is one which could continue its action uninterrupted for any considerable time without serious injury. Even the muscular fibres of the heart rest a part of the time between the beats and pulsations. Whether the brain, which is of course without muscular fibres, can act incessantly in the production of thought. It is a question which I believe is not yet settled by metaphysicians. One thing we do know, however, which is, that if the other organs suffer for want of rest, we soon find that, by the law of sympathy and otherwise, the brain and nervous system suffer along with them, and, if our wakefulness is greatly protracted, they sometimes suffer very severely. I have said that all the moving powers of the body require rest. They do, and in the young, a good deal of it. It is in vain for mankind, the young especially, to abridge their hours of sleep, whether for selfish or benevolent purposes. Sleep is made by the Creator, a condition of our being and happiness, and he who complies not with this condition is unworthy of the boon sleep moreover should be had at the right season it is useless to think of sleeping during the daytime and keeping awake during the night with impunity for many facts are on record showing in vivid colours the mischiefs which result sooner or later from thus turning day into night and night into day need i present these facts they are found in greater or less numbers in almost every work on health or physiology i will present but one it is from Vellingen. Two colonels in the French army some time ago had a dispute whether it was most safe to march in the heat of the day or in the evening. To ascertain this point they obtained permission of the commanding officer to put their respective plans into execution. Accordingly, the one with his division marched during the day, although it was the heat of summer, and rested all night. The other with his men slept in the daytime and marched during the evening and part of the night. The result was that the first performed a journey of six hundred miles without losing a single man or horse, while the latter lost most of his horses and several of his men. Of course, the inference from this and other similar facts is that night is a time for sleep and not day. Is it said that every person knows this? But every person does not practice accordingly. There are those who either do not know the fact, and not a few young women, too, may be found among the number, or who, knowing it, do not act according to their knowledge. Is it not more charitable to conclude they do not know the fact? Franklin, indeed, once undertook to show, in his humorous way, that the inhabitants of Paris did not know that the sun gave light at its first rising whether they did know it or not or whether or not they were culpable for their ignorance provided it was voluntary shall hold my readers to be as truly guilty of doing that wrong which is the result of their own voluntary ignorance as if their minds were really enlightened the young woman who goes to bed so late that she cannot wake till it has been day for some time or who darkens her room on purpose the daylight may not interrupt her repose when it comes, and who knows at the same time that it is wrong to sleep by daylight except from the most absolute necessity, is as truly guilty as if she slept by daylight with her windows open. I believe the night is long enough for sleep in any latitude not higher than fifty degrees, and comparatively few of the human family reside much further than this towards the poles. The young woman who finds herself inclined to sleep after daylight should resolve to break the habit as soon as possible. In order to do this, however, she should believe herself able to do it. Here it will be rational to ask whether, after all, there is any moral character in the error, if it be one, of sitting up an hour later than usual and then making it up by sleeping an hour after the arrival of daylight whether it is not a matter of propriety merely rather than a question of positive right or wrong in the sight of heaven this question i have answered in the chapter on conscientiousness to which in order to prevent repetition i might refer the reader if there be a sort of actions to which no character good or bad can justly be attached then what did the apostle mean in requiring that whatever we do should be done to the glory of god and where is the line to be drawn between those actions which are too small or too trifling to be worthy of having any right or wrong attached to them, and those which are not? But if everything we do is either right or wrong, then there is a right or a wrong in regard to the particular class of actions of which I am just now treating. The object of sleep should be to restore us and fit us for renewed action. We may rest, to some extent, without sleep, as when we throw ourselves upon a sofa or sit in an easy chair. Indeed, there is no hour of the day in which some portions of the moving powers are not resting, more or less. Still, we cannot be wholly restored in body and mind without the soothing influence of tired nature's sweet restorer. Balmy sleep, every young woman should regulate her habits in regard to sleep and rest, not less than all her other habits, in such a way as will tend most to the good of her whole nature and as will consequently tend most to the glory of God. In other words, each person should be governed in this matter by true philosophy and Christian principle. This would lead to the following axioms or conclusions, every one of which is sustained by high authority. Apartments for sleep should, if possible, be large and airy, and not on a ground floor, or in too dark a corner of the building. The air of the room should circulate freely, although it is not considered safe to be exposed to currents of air. To this end, the bed should be rather large and loose, and should stand out from the wall and from the corners of the room, and should be without curtains, even in the coldest weather. The bed ought to be rather hard, but it should at any rate be cool, soft-yielding feather-beds, in which the body sinks deeply, are very injurious, on account of the unnatural heat and perspiration they are sure to induce. It is of little consequence what the material of your bed is, if it be light, dry, and porous, and not too soft. Straw, grass, husks, hair, and a great variety of other things have been employed. Almost anything, I repeat it, is better than feathers. The same remarks will apply to pillows. We should sleep with as little covering as we can, and not actually feel cold and chilly. Most persons sleep under a great deal too much clothing. We require more in cold than in warm weather. We also require more on first going to bed than when we get fairly warm. But as it usually happens that we get warm and go to sleep at nearly the same time, it follows that the clothing which was only sufficient to warm us remains on the bed all night. We ought not put on so much clothing as we are apt to do when we first go to bed, then we shall not be likely to sleep all night under too much clothing and wake up in the morning weakened by it. The temperature of the room must never be overlooked. It should be as cold as it can well be made and not be absolutely uncomfortable. One reason for this is that the oxygen, or vital principle of the air, which is more abundant in a given volume of cool air than in an equal amount of that which is warmer will last longer when the room is cool and the room will thus remain free from impurity another reason is that ratified air not only contains less oxygen in a given volume as i have already said but also appears to admit more readily of the admixture and thorough diffusion of biad gases the carbonic acid gas which is formed by breathing settles the more readily towards the floor in proportion to the general density of the atmosphere of the room. And if the bedroom be large so that it does not accumulate in such a quantity to rise higher than the bed, it is less likely to be breathed over again than if the atmosphere was more rare. But there is still another reason for having our bedclothes cool, though it is substantially the same with that mentioned in the preceding paragraph for having light rooms, beds and light covering. We are greatly debilitated by sleeping unnecessarily warm. Our vital powers should be trained to generate a good deal of heat, and what they have been trained to do they should continue to perform. All the heat, I say, therefore, which the body will manufacture for itself readily, it should be permitted to do so. But the moment we depend unnecessarily on external means of warmth, as too much or too soft and warm bed-clothing, and too warm an atmosphere, that moment our internal organs begin to be enervated in a greater or less degree, whether we are sensible of it or not we should not sleep in the clothes we have worn during the day this is not on account of the heat it may induce but on account of the bad air which our clothing confines by having extra clothes for the night and those very few indeed and taking a little pains with those we have worn during the day to hang them up and air them properly we may do much towards keeping the pores of our body open preserving the skin in a clean state, and in a condition to perform its accustomed work. We should also avoid damp clothing about our beds or bedrooms. A healthy person may get slightly wet in the early part of the day, and even remain wet for a short time, especially if he continues in action without injury, but it is by no means safe to sit down or lie down in wet or damp clothing and it is more unsafe to do so at the close of the day than it is in the morning. A vast amount of disease, colds, rheumatism, fever, and consumption is generated or aggravated in this way. What I have said here of the conditions of sleep is sustained, as I have already informed the reader, by high authority. I mean that of McNish. He says further that, quote, the practice of having two or three beds in one room and two or three individuals in each bed must be deleterious end quote. and that wherever it is necessary for more than one person to sleep in a single bed quote, they should take care to place themselves in such a position as not to breathe in each other's faces end quote. He also alludes to the custom of covering the head with the bedclothes, and calls it, as he ought to do, a dangerous custom. McNish also gives the following directions on this subject. Quote, Before going to bed, the body should be brought into that state which gives us the surest chance of dropping speedily asleep. If too hot, its temperature ought to be reduced by cooling drinks. Footnote: By cooling drinks McNish can surely not mean drinks of a low temperature, for these would be somewhat injurious in the evening. He means by cooling, not heating or irritating. Exposure to the open air, sponging, or even the cold bath. If too cold, it must be brought into a comfortable state by warmth, for both cold and heat act as stimuli, and their removal is necessary before sleep can ensue. A full stomach also, though it sometimes promotes, generally prevents sleep. Consequently, supper ought to be dispensed with, except by those who, having been long used for this, to this meal, cannot do without it. As a general rule, the person who eats nothing for two or three hours before going to rest will sleep better than he who eats a late supper. His sleep will also be more refreshing and his sensations upon awaking, much more gratifying." The cold bath at going to bed, taken to reduce our heat because we are too warm, is a rather doubtful utility. Some may use it with entire safety, but to the feeble, or those who have been greatly overheated or over-fatigued, it would be hazardous. By supper, McNish means, no doubt, that fourth meal so common in fashionable life, and not the usual third meal at six o'clock. Those who never heard of a fourth have no occasion for caution on this subject, except it being in regard to quantity. This third meal, however, even when it is eaten three hours before going to bed, should be light. In order to sleep properly, let all the conditions which I have mentioned be faithfully observed. Then to these let there be added a most strict or conscientious regard for the rule which I have suggested in the beginning of this chapter, which is to rise early. Let no young woman be found in bed after daylight in the longest days, nor in the winter after four o'clock some will say that at this rate they should not get enough sleep during the night and should as a consequence either be dull during their waking hours or be obliged to take a nap in the daytime but if our hard-labouring people who rise at four o'clock in the summer find time enough to sleep most of them without a nap in the daytime surely they whose labour is not so hard can do it they cannot i well know if they sit up till ten or eleven o'clock at night if any one desires to glorify god in everything she does let her attend to the conditions i have mentioned if she finds that in rising at daylight she does not get sleep enough let her go to bed a little earlier we ought to sleep about as much before midnight as after as she who goes to bed at eight and rises at four will be pretty sure to get sleep enough Few, if any, persons over twelve years of age need more than twelve hours' sleep, and the greater proportion not so much. Here I will mention one thing which does not seem to be generally known. The more we sleep, if we increase our sleep by degrees, the more we may. How far the time for sleep may be thus extended, I do not know. There are indeed circumstances which may make the same individual require less or more sleep, independent of the habit of indulgence. Still, it is true as a general fact that we may sleep as much or as little as we please. When we increase the hours of sleep, however, it does not follow that we actually sleep more in the same proportion. Let an active the individual who have been accustomed to six hours suddenly confine herself to four. Will her actual sleep be abridged by one-third? By no means. Nature will endeavour to make up for the loss of time by inducing sounder sleep. In this, however, she is only in part successful. For those who sleep very soundly often sleep too sound. We are sometimes conscious when we are awake from our over sound sleep that we are not well refreshed, but whether conscious of it or not, it is so. McNish says quote, that sleep from which we are easily roused is the healthiest. Very profound slumber partakes of the nature of apoplexy. End quote. A person who, having been in the habit of sleeping six hours in twenty four, suddenly reduces the number to four will probably for a time sleep as much in four hours as she slept before in about five or five and a half but the quality of these five or five and a half hours sleep will be inferior and continue so unless she arouses herself to an increased activity of her intellectual powers and reduces the quantity of her food and drink i have supposed it to be generally known that we need the more sleep or seem to need it in proportion as our minds are less active and our bodily appetites hold us more in subjection. The individual male or female who approaches the most nearly to the more stupid lower animals in point of intelligence, activity and general habits, will actually seem to require the most sleep and on the contrary in proportion as an individual rises Above all this, and becomes exceedingly active in mind, body, and spirit, will the necessity for sleep be greatly diminished. Some of the most elevated of the human race, in point of intelligence, benevolence, and benevolent activity or spirituality, have acquired but very little sleep. Of this number were Wesley, Matthew Hale, Alfred the Great, Jeremy Taylor, Baxter, Bishops Jewell, and Burnett, Dr. John Hunter, Dr. Priestley, and Sobieski, as well as Frederick de Grey's, General Elliot, Lord Wellington, and Napoleon. The same number, too, are some of our modern missionaries, to say nothing of several distinguished statesmen, among whom is Lord Braham. In view of these considerations, is there one of my readers who, while she endeavours to sleep and ask, to answer every valuable purpose of her existence, on penalty of more or less suffering, will not guard with the same assiduity against sleeping too much. Aware that the more she indulges herself, the more she may, because she will become by so much the stu- more stupid, and that the more she denies herself sleep, provided it is not to such an extent that her sleep becomes apoplectic. The more will her intellectual powers be developed and acquire the ascendancy, and her animal nature be brought into subjection. Will she not exert herself to the utmost, and pray for aid from on high, in striving to gain the victory over herself, her lower self, her animal self, and thus increase the duration and value of her existence? I do not urge the consideration of the great amount of time merely which may be saved by rising early. Some have attempted to show that they who rise two hours earlier every morning than usual gain an amount of time in sixty years, viz. from the age of ten to that of seventy, equal to about seven years of active life. Is it not obvious that there may be a mistake here, for if she who rises two hours earlier goes to bed as much earlier at night, no time is saved at all. And if, without going to bed any earlier, she is rendered so much more dull or sleepy during the day that she loses two hours or even one, this will form a proportional deduction from her supposed gain. It is she only who, while she sleeps all which her nature really demands and takes care not to exceed the demand, succeeds, also in lessening the demand itself that is the real gainer. It is a pitiable sight to see an immortal being made in the image of Almighty God and capable, by divine aid, of enjoying him forever, rendering himself sleepy, brutish, or besotted by the form of indulgence of which I am now speaking, and it seems to be more pitiable, indeed, absolutely disgusting to see females doing this, and especially intelligent young women. I wish every reader would take this subject of wasting time in sleep into seriousness and conscientiousness and fearful consideration. Let her remember that her time is not hers any more than she herself is her own, that both are bought with a price, an amazing price too. How can she then waste time? a single moment of it. Yet people will do it. Hundreds and thousands and millions will do it. Some will do it, many I fear, who have professed the Christian name, and who believe they bear in their bodies the marks of their dying Lord and Master. I will close this chapter by briefly summing up what has been said. Let your sleep be in the night, not in the daytime let it be moreover in the middle of the night as much as possible to sit up till near midnight and to get up just after midnight are perhaps equally injurious though not by any means equally common spend the clothes of each day at home and go to bed early with an empty or nearly empty stomach a bed simple and cool and your room also cool wake up with the first rays of the morning in summer and about the same hour in winter get up as soon as you wake and if your sleep has been insufficient go to rest a little earlier the succeeding evening thus you will once discharge your duty and obtain peace here and hereafter End of chapter twenty one